Um, I feel um, the title of my sermon today is The Last Important Thing, which doesn't mean I'm not going to come preach if you need me to, <laughs> okay? But uh, today, this sermon, I feel uniquely qualified to um, bring to you because um, it's a message from an old pastor to people he knew and loved and cared for. And uh, so we're going to go into that. Today we look at the letter of James, um, who you might remember is the half-brother of Jesus, who probably up until somewhere in his 20s did not believe that Jesus was anything but a deranged, crazy person. In fact, in Mark 3.21, it says, uh, let me just read it. It says in verse 20, one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Um, New American Standard says he has lost his senses. And in the Amplified Bible, it says he's deranged. So um, it doesn't say James said that, but he was one of six younger siblings of Jesus. And I wouldn't doubt that he was in that crowd. But Fast forward a little bit, after Jesus died on the cross, was buried, then he resurrected in his resurrection body. We know that he presented himself to 500 people. He, he talked, to, But he came face to face and met with James, his half-brother, this same James that wrote the book of James, and that changed his life. You could imagine, couldn't you? You call me deranged. And maybe like Thomas, he said, guess what? I'm, you can touch. You know, here's the spear print. It's me. And I've defeated death. So as a result of that, James became the pastor in Jerusalem. And you might remember if you've read the book of Acts, it says on numerous occasions that God added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the church was growing fabulously with a lot of different people. And James cared for them and preached for them and uh, loved them, got to know them. And then we find in Acts chapter 8, persecution came. God had told, they, told them that they needed to go Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost parts, and they wanted to stay in Jerusalem. And so God had a remedy for that. He brought persecution. And he brought a guy who was then named Saul and with others, and they started ravaging the church. Could you imagine today having the fear that someone would come into your house this morning, pull you out of your house and say, you're a Christian, you're going to prison. And so what would that do to the congregation today? Well, that's what happened. Everybody scattered. Everybody was going in different places. They, they fled and they scattered all over Asia Minor. And wherever they went, they knew because of the preaching of James and because of the call of the gospel that they had a mission. And I don't know if you've recognized wherever you move, you still have a mission too. The mission is to take the gospel with you and lead your neighbors to Christ, lead those you come in your sphere of influence and start churches and have the kingdom move forward. That's been the pattern all along. And so here they are. They did exactly what James taught them to do. Um, but I want to emphasize that when he writes to these folks in this letter, he knew them well. 
Now, those of you that have been in this church a while, I could ask you about different people in the church, and you could tell me stories. You could tell me things. You could tell me this stuff. So he knew their weaknesses, their strengths, their sins. And so this letter, the book of James, letter of James, is a lot of, okay, you know me. I'm going to tell you what not to do so you don't mess it up. Here's what not to do, so, and here's what to do. So I'm going to give you a real quick, the quickest um, review you've ever had of the first four chapters until we get to our passage in chapter 5. Chapter 1, he starts with something they knew well, and he knew well. You're not very wise. And guess what? You have a resource, though, and that's God, and you need to ask him for wisdom on a regular basis because you're not wise. But when you ask God for wisdom, don't doubt that he's going to give it to you. Because if you doubt, just don't ask. Because obviously you don't believe and it's just a waste of time. He says, know this, trials and temptations are going to come to you. Don't be shocked. It's going to happen. Then he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and put your anger in a hole somewhere. It's, it's going to mess things up. If you, if you are blabbing at the mouth, if you are um, not listening to people, and then he ends that chapter, take care of the widows and orphans. People will notice they need care, and it's what the gospel is about. Chapter 2, don't show partiality to the rich. Treat everyone with love. Love your neighbor. Now, when they read this letter, they hear... Have you ever read a letter from somebody you know well, back when we wrote letters? Um, and you hear their voice, like if it's from your grandmother, you could hear your grandmother's voice as you read it. Um, and it's kind of like, and when they use a certain phrase, that's a phrase they've used for so long. I would venture to say the people that originally read this letter to James were going, okay, I've heard that sermon that's condensed from the sermon he did here. And, and it's all there. He says, I'm hearing his voice. So he says, he says this, have faith that works. Work out what God's worked into you. What God has done in your life and what you've seen God do, you work out. You know you need to grow. Obviously, you need the wisdom and all that stuff. That will require daily effort. You're going to have to work out what God put in on a daily basis. This is not just happens. You're going to have to actively be involved in searching God. Chapter 3. I know you, and you struggle with your tongue. Guess what? I do too. Everybody does. It's unruly. But it causes a whole lot of damage. And he says continually... And it, it's not, it's not in chapter 3, but I, I would, it basically kind of refers back, kind of like, go back and read chapter 1 again. <laughs> you need wisdom. Keep asking God on a daily basis for wisdom. And then in verse 4, I'm sure when they first read it, they could have said amen to these things. He says, um, you tend to have wrong motives. Like, well, yeah, that's true. Amen. And you're easily tempted. And they go, oh, me. That's me. He says, know this. And he goes into some little detail. God will oppose you in the area of your pride. And he will continue to oppose you in the area of your pride until you repent. 
God loves you so much. And then once you repent, he will give you more grace. Realize this, that when God is opposing you in your pride, that's graciousness. That's God's work in your life. And I've often said, if you are struggling with something and you have a trial and then it goes by and then you tend to have the same trial and the same trial, I've talked to you about that in the past over and over again, which means you haven't really dealt with it. And God is opposing you. And he tells them, God will oppose you until you humble yourself and then he'll give more grace. He tells them, don't judge others. <laughs> Obviously, you're not in a position to do that. And he says, don't make plans that don't include God's saying no to it or yes to it or change it. Don't go think you're going to go to the city and make this much profit and do this and that. Realize, you know, the whole saying, if you tell God your plans, listen to him laugh, right? So he can change. You have to be able to do that. I, um, when I lead someone to Christ, there's a certain pattern I have personally um, obviously, when, after you share the gospel with them and you pray with them and they, they pray to receive Christ, the first thing I do is, um, if I gave you $100, what would you say? And they go, I don't know. No, what would you say if I gave you $100? They say, well, thank you. I said, well, I want you in your own words now to pray and thank God for giving you salvation. So then they pray. After they pray, here's the thing I tell them, and you steal this, take it, go ahead and do this with folks you'd lead to the Lord. I tell them, you're going to have trouble in four different areas as a new believer. The first one is family. You might go home and people kind of poo-poo what you did when you tell them about it. I've had many young people go on a youth retreat, trust Christ for, for their salvation, go home and tell their folks, and they say, now don't become too religious, Right? So family, they all start with F, by the way. You're going to have trouble with your finances because guess what? It's not your money anymore. All of a sudden, you're going to have to ask God about how you spend your, the money he's given you. So you're going to have problems with family. You're going to have problems with finances. And you're going to have problems with friends because they might not understand. And so here's what I asked them to do. I said, who are the four people you're most hesitant to tell that you've trusted Christ? And immediately they have... Well, my brother, this, that, what, whatever. And I said, okay, here's the assignment. I want you to go tell them within the next two days what's happened to you. And then I want you to let me know what they said. Because the sooner you do that, the better it is. You tell them, just tell them your story and what God's done in your life. And let them know. So obviously, because that, that might change your relationship. It might, they might not want to be with you anymore. Or they might go, Hey, I want to hear more about that too. And then the last one is, comes from this passage, your future. So when you say, um, I'm going to do this or that, you have to be willing to say, God, what do you want in my life, in my future? So this old pastor basically is telling these folks that he loves, remember why you're here. And that applies to this church. We had a group of people from England come that their ministry is based in England and um, it's material we use at Joe Gibbs Racing called Christianity Explored. And they made the comment when we met with them that the Christians in America are different than the Christians in England. Christians in England are post-Christian post society. Um, they are, it's unusual for people to go to church there except if they're really believers. So the believers in England 
are always thinking about evangelism because their church will not survive unless they reach people with the gospel. People in America, it doesn't seem, tend to be a burning issue in our life. We're just living life. Well, the people that he's writing to, um, that James is writing to, if they do not share the gospel, we don't come to Christ at this age. So God has used people throughout how many people in here, this is an honest question, have come to Christ because of a relationship with somebody else? Basically, everybody that's a believer. Because if otherwise, how did you hear it? There, there, there might be some that have had dreams and have come to Christ that way, but that's not the most, un, you know, the usual way is you have a relationship with someone. And then we come to chapter 5. He, he begins the chapter with, he warns uh, the rich about their riches. He reminds them to be patient and don't grumble with one another. That sounds applicable to any local church, right? <laughs> be patient and don't grumble with one another. And then he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then we come to this passage. And so it's printed in your bulletin, uh, verses 13 through the end of the book. And I'll uh, listen to the inspired word of God. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick or weak? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick or the weak, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayers of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. The reason why I took the time for that quick review of the first four chapters is I wanted you to know that this old pastor really knows a thing or two about people. He understood what was going on. And so he's writing to them and telling them, obviously, what not to mess up, um, and his main emphasis at the end, what I call the last important thing, is prayer. He start, started with wisdom and ends with prayer. Um, he basically says, you're going to get beat up by your circumstances, bruised and battered. You're already refugees, but remember your major resource is God. Keep in touch every day by talking with him about what's going on in your life. Look at verse 13. Are any of you suffering hardship? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. The I have three major points. That's it. The first one is you need to pray individually. When things are hard, you need to pray to the Lord. When things are hard, that's when people tend to drift away from God. They either tend to, to doubt his goodness or to think he's impotent and can't do what needs to be, be done. But there's no way we should be in this trial. And so they tend to wander away from God. And people tend to, to wander away when things are going good. They say, I've got it all together. And they give themselves the credit for making life so happy. Right? So he's saying the last important thing is you need to pray and recognize in your circumstances. If, if you're struggling, immediately pray. Pray individually. If you're happy, you need to give God praise. You need to sing. 
break out and sing. <laughs> Say, God, this is great. I love what's going on. Um, verse 14, are any of you sick or weak? You should call for the elder of the church and come and pray over you, anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick or the weak, and the Lord will make you well. And if any of you have committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. These verses have been misunderstood in so many ways, and I think the context that I've tried to labor to give to you today gives us a real insight in what he's saying here. Are any of you sick or weak? The Greek word sick, and I'm not going to go into great lengths about this, but uh, all the Greek dictionaries agree that this is the, the primary meaning of the Greek word that is often here as sick, my research assistant, John Piper, helped me with this. He says that the primary meaning is to be weak or feeble or impotent. And you'll think with it me, it's, uh, I'll give you a little, little more background. Um, most of the time, in like Romans 4.19, Romans 14, Romans 14.21, it talks about it becomes a weakness of faith. It's called a use of spiritual weakness in 1 Corinthians 8. In Romans 5, it's the impotence of the unsaved to do anything spiritual because they cannot do it. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, 21, it's mentioned about the weakness of personality. So that's the picture here. As a result of trying to fulfill the mission of leaving Jerusalem, going to someplace where you think you can live, you move into a town with the good news of Jesus and your family, and that's about it. You're trying to earn a living. You keep trying to keep your kids under control, build a house, plant a garden, work a job, deal with those next door to you that don't want Christians living next to them, making your life terrible. The Apostle Paul, who was the Saul before, uh, went from city to city talking about Jesus, just like these people were to talk about Jesus, but they were hopefully going to be planted there instead of being an itinerant preacher. We read in Corinthians how he had a rough time. He was beaten up numerous times, left for dead, uh, flogged. It was really rough. And you could imagine that when you leave Jerusalem and you're a Christian, you go into an area, it could be tough. That's why he said expect persecution, expect struggling. Yet in the middle of your battle, if you've arrived to the point where you're defeated and you're down on the battlefield, maybe because of the persecution or maybe because of your own sin, the point is that you're weak. You're mentally weak. You're emotionally weak. You're physically weak. You're spiritually defeated. It may have ramifications in your, spiritual, in your physical body, the persecution, the trials, the temptations, the battle. And you've tried to pray during this process. You've not been able to draw on the power of God, and now you find yourself in a position of being spiritually weak. You've hit the bottom. You don't know what to do. It's hard for you to pray. By the way, have any of you been in that situation where things are going so hard, you don't feel like you can even pray? And you try to pray, and it just feels like it bounces off the walls. If you've been there, you could identify with what he's saying here. He says, if you're spiritually weak and you want help, who do you go to? You go to somebody who's spiritually strong to pray with you and pray for you. You go, as it says in this passage, to the elders of the church. Go to the elders. Why? Because they're the spirit, they have the spiritual strength you need. Go to the spiritually strong, those who are victorious, 
those who have, are patiently enduring. They're not perfect, but they are actively drawing on the strength of God, and they can come help you. Go to the elders. So the second point is, first one is pray individually. When you're struggling, pray. When you're happy, pray. Sing praises. May your song be your, your prayer. But when you're spiritually worn out and you're weak, go to the elders. and They will pray for you. I have had the great privilege um, to pray for many people. And they've, they've, they've called us. And let me tell you how that works if you've never done that. Uh, at least this is how I do that. We go and we, we say, what's the situation? What's going on? And, and we, we hear it. This is going on. This is going on. It could be a physical ailment or a spiritual ailment, whatever. But we hear them. And then I ask this question because the text says, um, and if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. I say, do you have um, sin in your life right now that's unforgiven, that's not been dealt with? Every time I've ever been. I've gone to visit pastors. I've gone to visit other elders and do that. Every time I've asked that question, there's been some sin. If it's the couple, usually the most honest will say first, right? And by the way, I'm never shocked. <laughs> I'm never shocked because, you know, when you've heard it a whole bunch, you, you, one thing you ought to know having the Bible in front of you is that everybody, I've yet to meet a fully functioning family. <laughs> now, I've never met one. You might think, oh, you know, Hudson and Catherine, they have it all together. Their hair looks good. Well, her hair looks good. <laughs> You know, their kids look perfect, everything. You, go, you, you say that, and you, you tend to have the idea they've got it all together, but you know because the Bible says they're sinners. I'm a sinner. But the elders, as they come to you, they ask that question, and you know there's something really freeing about saying it out loud. Obviously, at that point, it's something that can be named. We tend to let our sins be like Baltimore. You know, that should never be, yeah, oh, oh the, the, the sin that should not be named, right? Or the, you know, the person that should not be named. If you, if that, that never mind. <laughs> um, but when I asked them that question, I said, okay, are you ready to repent of that sin. And sometimes they're shocked because I didn't think I was going to ask that question. They didn't think I was going to ask pointedly with, you know, just a few people in the room, what is your sin? But after it happens and they say the sin, I said, have you, are you ready to repent? And, they, and a few times it's been, I'm not so sure. I said, well, then I need to pray that you'll be ready to repent. And then we'll come back later. But so when, in, when they repent, we pray, the elders pray, and then we go through with them and remind them that the Scripture says if you confess your sin and repent of your sin, Jesus is faithful that he will not only forgive your sin, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and you can be free. 
So when you're spiritually weak and you, you don't feel like you can pray, call the elders. They will help you to pray and bring freedom and bring forgiveness of sins. Now, a lot of times a question is asked, what about the oil? What is that? What's that about? You know, you know uh, certain denominations and, and religions, they, you know, you put a cross on your head, that sort of thing. Go back with me to the first century when you're beat up, what did they use for people that were scratched up, beat up, maybe even slogged? They put oil on their body. It's a phrase about rubbing oil. When you are in an arid area and you are all beat up, they'll put oil and bring healing to you. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. So, number one, pray individually. Two, when you're down in the depths, Call your elders, the spiritually strong, to pray for you. And then look at verse 16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful research. You have small groups here. I encourage you to be in it. I want you maybe to add something to your small group. Say, is there something we need to maybe separate men and women together or, or whatever? And we're going to pray, is there a sin that you are having a hard time dealing with that we need to pray for? I think the Bible says, confess your sins to each other. That's the third thing. Not only pray individually, pray with the elders, but pray for one another. And confess your sins to one another. Um, Satan loves the darkness of a hidden sin. Pastor James is saying, find fellow Christians you can trust and hold one another up. Confess out loud. And he gives a perfect illustration for this. He says, Elijah was a human as we are, and yet he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall. None fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent rain, and earth began to yield its crops. Now, Elijah, a man like us, he had issues, and God answered his prayer. Now, if James, who I think was a, an accomplished pastor, and if he wanted to use an illustration about physical healing, there were a bunch of other illustrations he could have used. But if he wanted to use an illustration of someone being weak and completely worn out and in an arid land, what would be a better illustration than the refreshing rain on a dry, parched land? Uh, what, isn't that a perfect illustration? That he prayed for a drought, and then he prayed for refreshing. And then the land bore fruit. And then it ends this way. And the context is great. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back, who, is he br who, who brought back? Who brings that person back? Read on. You can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of sins. It could be the elders, right? But I think predominantly it's one another. When you know people are starting to wander away from the faith, it's probably because, now, here I'll give you an old pastor illustration. I've had a lot of people that struggle with God, and they come up with good reasons to leave the church. It doesn't take long, right? So-and-so didn't talk to me. You know, so-and-so didn't greet me. Or that woman never talks to me. Or that man never says hello. Or that guy walked right by me, didn't say a thing. 
you know, you could you could complain about the sermons, you could complain about a lot of sorts of stuff for, for not being in together with God's people. Because think about it, God brings all sorts of sinners together and says, focus on him. It's sort of like a marriage. A marriage is great when God's involved. And, and the husband and wife are trying to get closer and closer to the Lord. But it, when God's not involved, we see what happens there. So as a result of praying in an honest way about real things, it brings back sinners. And it keeps them walking. For those that were scattered from Jerusalem, they needed one another. They needed elders. And they needed to pray. And, and he closes the letter just like that. Boom. There's no salutation, say so and so. It's written to all these people, but he ends with the last important thing, and that's prayer, these three different ways, individually, with elders, and with one another. Let's pray together. Father, one really encouraging thing about this passage is it shows us that you're involved, and you want us to talk to you, and that we do have a resource, and it's your power. The same power that Elijah asked for, we have. And we have the opportunity to see people forgiven and move forward in their walk with you. And Father, I pray for this church. I pray that there would be a reminder one day when someone says, I don't think I can pray. It's just not happening. That they will remember this sermon and call the elders. Or the next time they're really happy, they might remember I need to just sing to God and thank him for it. Or they'll be open to share their sin with people they trust. So, Father, would you do that, we pray. Help us to not only think it, but to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.